is a guy called Tim Robbins, American actor. And in an interview, he said this, Shawshank Redemption is a film about people being in jail and having the hope to get it out. Why is that universal? Because although not everybody has been in jail, on a deeper level, many people feel enslaved by their environment, their jobs, their relationships, by whatever it is in the course of their lives that puts walls and bars around them. And Shawshank is a story about enduring and ultimately escaping from that imprisonment. So this idea of being trapped or imprisoned and then striving to both endure and then ultimately break free was a powerful connection with audiences after it stopped showing at the cinema. I don't know if it would be your favourite film. If you haven't seen the film, it is a hard watch. It is a brutal prison drama. If you have a sensitive disposition, I wouldn't recommend you watching this film. In the end, can I give a spoiler? Like 20 years after a film came out. If you haven't watched it yet, it's your own fault, so I'm going to give you a spoiler. Um, The lead character, Andy Dufresne, escapes from prison after many years by tunnelling and ultimately by crawling through the sewers. And there's a great quote by his co-star, Morgan Freeman, towards the end, I think it is, where he simply says, I can't quote it perfectly. This is one of the times when swear words are very descriptive. Andy Dufresne, who crawled through a river of, just insert your own word there, and came out clean the other side. So many films, when we think about it, have this kind of plot line, don't we? There's a serious problem that requires an incredible solution, and in the end, It is all designed to deliver the best and most liberating outcome. Many films have that kind of redemptive plotline, don't they? Problem, a solution, and a liberating outcome. And this is the this was the plot. Andy Dufresne was trapped. He worked hard, hard, and in the most ingenious and patient way, he eventually got free and came out the other side. And this picture here, even this is a picture of a man who has found his redemption, isn't it? In fact, the the image here almost has a hint of Christ about it. I I don't know if that's deliberate on the part of the filmmakers. Arms outstretched, having won or, or achieved redemption. Why do I begin there? Well, in our studies in Ephesians, we've, this is session number seven. We're going quite slow. It's very deliberate. We're only up to verse seven. And verse 7, if you've got a handout, it's on the top of the page there. If you're in the Bible, it's on page 1173. Verse 7, Paul says, In him, that is Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Paul there uses the word redemption so we're going to be very simple today as we think about this verse I just want to take the plot of the Shawshank redemption and put a kind of biblical twist on it we're just going to think about a serious problem an incredible solution and a liberating outcome 
It's good when the preacher only has three points. It's a major problem when he's got like four or five sub-points under each main point. But we'll, we'll get there in the end. So, first of all, a serious problem. When Paul uses the word redemption, I want you to get under the skin of this word. He is implying a serious problem. The reason for that is that the word redemption in the Bible is always about deliverance or setting something free. Uh, Sometimes the idea of redemption involves paying a price, so the idea of ransoming a slave from the slave market, but it doesn't always have the idea of paying a price. It's really about setting free. This idea would have been very clear to someone who was a member of the Jewish race. Um, And Paul, who's writing this letter, was a Jewish man. And the reason it would resonate is because in Jewish history, this kind of redemption is embedded in their very national identity. Um, The great... There's another film coming out actually on Boxing Day called Exodus, Gods and Kings. I don't know if you've seen the trailers for that. Christian Bale is in it. I've no idea if the story is true to the Bible, but it looks, the trailer looks amazing. Um, so that, maybe that's the fun to see over the Christmas holidays. The great picture of redemption in the Old Testament was known as the Exodus. When, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and, and ultimately to the Promised Land, their great problem, their serious problem, was that they were oppressed as slaves in a foreign country. They'd gone there because of a famine when they were quite small and they found themselves cruelly treated. They were in a terrible mess. After 400 years, 400 years of brutal captivity, God comes to Moses and in the Bible tells him this, Exodus chapter 3. This is God speaking. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. These people were in a mess. They were in a terrible state and God promises to come and smash their prison and to bring them out and to set them free a little later God says to them through Moses I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment it is like God is saying to them I've seen your struggle 400 years of struggle I've seen the misery, I've heard you crying out to me and I've got big muscles and I'm on my way to smash the prison and set you free. That sounds like great news for people who are suffering. The idea of redemption is basically smashing the prison to bits to liberate the captives. That, that, That is the idea underneath, the idea of redemption. It implies liberation from slavery, captivity, danger. It implies deliverance to freedom and safety. It involves power and effort and it leads from misery to joy, from slavery to freedom. Redemption was therefore a very good thing in Israel's history. This was what they looked back to 
This was part of their national identity. They worshipped God as their great redeemer, their great deliverer, their great prison smasher. It's very interesting then that Paul chooses to use this word in verse 7. Here, he knows all the connotations of this kind of language. And Paul knows that for us to be in need of redemption implies that we too must have a very serious problem. We're not slaves in Egypt. But the New Testament takes up this idea of human beings like us being in a kind of spiritual slavery, a bondage. This is how the Bible pictures our natural condition before God. We're not really free. We're enslaved somehow. We need a prison smasher. We need a redeemer. I just want to pause there and... um, and underline how much this is, I, w- I want to say countercultural. This, this is the exact opposite of what our culture says, I think. The Bible says that we have a serious problem and that God is the great liberator. The whole trajectory of the Bible story is from captivity to freedom. The gospel is expansive, it is a message of joy, it's a message of good news. But our culture says, you don't really want to go anywhere near God because that would be narrow and limiting. That would enslave you. I think our culture believes very sincerely, actually, that it is running towards freedom, but all the while blind to its own captivity. The assumption is that Christianity causes problems and is something to be avoided. But here Paul assumes that actually Christianity is the answer to our most fundamental issues. So there's two different clashing trajectories there. So one writer says this, when the Bible says that Jesus redeemed us, that means, first of all, that we are in dire straits. We were in a terrible condition. We were in bondage. We were in slavery. We were under a curse. We were under the threat of death or we were dead. I I don't know what mood you come to church in today. That's not something we like to hear, is it? It isn't something we particularly want to hear. But I, I want to suggest to you that it is really important that we get this right. Because if we don't understand how God We'll never understand how God smashes the prison if we don't understand what the prison is. It's really crucial that we get that. On the other hand, I want to make a promise to you today that if you you get this, it, it, it has the power to absolutely transform your attitude to God, to yourself, and even to other people. Do you remember when we were early on in chapter 1 we, we said uh, something about chapter 1 and chapter 2 I, I don't need to do it again do you remember I stood on a chair chapter 1 is what we might call top down ok chapter 1 is like God's perspective, it's all about what God is doing chapter 2 
I laid on the floor. Chapter 2 is all about our perspective, looking up. So chapter 1 begins with God. This is what God's doing. Chapter 2 begins with, what does that feel like for me? And this is a very joyful letter, but Paul begins in chapter 2 with some very sobering words. Here's God's perspective. Chapter 2, here's our perspective. And he's not a spectator in this. Paul includes himself in this. Just look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. I think Paul in verses 1 to 3 there is describing the prison and he's saying I was in there the door was locked the bars were strong and I couldn't get out so that the problem here is, is, is the problem that the Bible calls this sin and I want to explore with you why this is a prison so just bear with me I've got three things to say about this prison and they're there on the handout. First of all, the guilt that makes us hard. I, I don't know if you would agree with me. I think there's a lot of talk in our culture about guilt. Where does it come from? Why do we seem to suffer so much with guilt? People who are not religious and rather atheistic um, struggle to try and work out how the emotion of guilt works. If you assume evolution... You know, you've got a tough question there. You know, what, where, where, why, why would something like guilt evolve in human history? What is the point of guilt? How can it possibly be helpful? We, we have the relatively new idea, don't we, of the idea of guilty pleasure. Are you familiar with that phrase? This is a cultural thing, isn't it? We don't really want to admit that we watch certain things or listen to certain things because they're considered to be lowbrow or tacky but we enjoy it maybe when no one else in the house we turn the radio on and we listen to things that we it's a guilty pleasure I know it's rubbish but I enjoy it there's this sense that we ought to be listening and watching things that would educate us and make us better people but we just constantly fall for the enjoyable trash here's a question is it possible for something to be good for you and enjoyable at the same time? It's a good question to take away and think about. It'd be great if that was true for food, wouldn't it? Sometimes our guilt can be irrational. Um, I, I came across this very moving quote. I think that this, this is a bloke who, who commented on, on a forum just discussing the subject of guilt. And this, this is very honest. Maybe you could identify with this. I feel that I am being sunk by irrational guilt. Guilt of not helping enough around the house when I actually do just as much, if not more, than anyone else. Guilt from saying no. Guilt from not being able to say no. Guilt from being too nice. Guilt from not being nice enough. 
Guilt from not thinking enough. Guilt from overthinking. I'm trying desperately to figure out what the hell is wrong with me. What about those of us who try so damn hard to be good but end up just disappointing everyone we care about? Sunk by irrational guilt? I think that quote hints at guilt being one of the underlying issues if we happen to be what we might describe as a workaholic. Often we become very busy because what we're trying to do is measure up to something and it's just slightly out of reach. We're trying to break free. We're trying to achieve something. We're trying to build an identity that would make us feel fulfilled and happy and we work, 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 work. And yet we still feel a nagging sense of something. Psychiatrists talk about parents, don't they? Who burden their kids with such high expectations that they grow up feeling like whatever they do, it isn't good enough. And they constantly feel that they're underperforming. I think our sense of guilt can often be shown too by how quick we are to deflect criticism by comparing ourselves with other people. Bob Marley, I won't do it in his accent, but Bob Marley said, Who are you to judge the life? I live. I'm not perfect and I don't have to be. Before you start pointing your fingers, make sure your hands are clean. That is a great concept. We know what he means. But lurking in the background there, lurking in the background there, is his very real sense of not measuring up. His answer is, you can't tell me that because you don't measure up either. That isn't an answer to the problem of guilt. That's just, I may as well get on with it because everyone else is in the same boat. I remember at school studying um, Macbeth Do you know the story of Macbeth? Lady Macbeth persuades Macbeth to kill the king so that he'll be the king. She was very ambitious. And I remember the scene in that play. Shakespeare had such a good understanding of human nature. She's washing her hands in the sink and she just can't get rid of the stains that she sees there in her mind. Guilt. She's washing and washing and washing and nothing will clean her hands however hard she tries. Haunted, we might say. I think there's a massive connection between the idea of guilt and shame. We often feel, don't we, that we want to cover up and mask ourselves because if someone truly knew the real me, they wouldn't really like what they see. It's very interesting in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, the first thing that Adam and Eve did when they sinned against God was to run away and hide. Actually, God comes looking for them and he calls out, Adam, where are you? And he's in the bushes hiding, ashamed, trying to cover up the the sense of, don't look at me, I'm unclean. I think this is always how it is with us and God. Deep down we seem to know that we can't face him as we really are. One of the biblical ideas that relates to this is the idea of 
debt, uh, sin, being like a debt. In, in the end, all, all of the moral laws that God gives in the Bible can be summed up by two. Sometimes people call them the golden rules. You could sum up the whole Bible, the whole of the Ten Commandments, the whole thing, with two golden rules. The Bible says, love God with all your heart and love other people as you love yourself. The world would be a better place if everyone kept those two golden rules, wouldn't it? But we don't do either of those things perfectly, do we? We fall short, and it's like we owe God a debt. Uh, so, someone said, it's like we've borrowed God's car and brought it back with no wheels on. We owe him. You know, we borrowed it and we broke it. And there's a debt there that we can't pay. I think guilt is a big part of the prison that Paul's thinking about here. Let's, uh, let's rattle on, otherwise we're going to be here a long time. Secondly, I think Paul here is alluding to a power that we can't control. When, when the Bible talks about sin, it talks about sin in some different ways. Sometimes it talks about individual sins. Other times the Bible talks about sin as a kind of principle, a power, something that's kind of at work within us. So you have to be careful when you see the word sin to distinguish. I want to try and show you something important here. It may be that we do realise something of our guilt before God, that is. And for some people, that makes us do things and we think, oh, I feel a bit guilty. I think I'll become religious. I think I'll go to church and I'm going to become religious. I feel something's not right and I need to put it right. The problem we have at this point when we stop and think about it, is that actually the things that we then try to do, even if we're trying to do them for God, are actually, in the end, rooted in fear. And in the end, we're not truly doing those things for God, we're doing those things in a way to save our own skin. And if one of the golden rules is love God with your whole heart, and our motive in doing that is, I'm in the wrong, I need to prove I'm in the right. We're not doing it because we love him. In the end, we're actually doing it partly because we love ourselves. Some people, I think, get that too and just end up giving up. Maybe that was Bob Marley's quote. But that doesn't help either because the guilt and shame is still there. So my point is that sin is a kind of power that we can't actually break. We can't even break it by being religious. Whatever we do only seems to make things worse. Oh, my, I'm sorry to be so grim. It won't last long, this. We'll get to the good bit in a minute. Let me give you one third thing. The condemnation we dread. Oh man, this is a grim picture. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3, we are, this is him speaking as well, we are by nature objects of wrath. Oh man, it's like from the Bible's perspective, we're, we're kind of on death row, waiting for the inevitable 
condemnation to come. Here's the biblical picture of human nature. We tell ourselves we're free, but in actual fact, spiritually, we're locked in and slaved by guilt and shame and inability and also by the fact that there's this condemnation that never seems to leave us. I wish we had time to go to another place in the Bible, Galatians chapter 3. Paul says there, the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, held prisoners by the law, locked up. What what I want to say to you though is, Paul's language here is not miserable. We've got to think about this, I'm really sorry. We've got to think about this because we need to get the problem right to see the incredible nature of the solution. Paul's language isn't miserable here. If language could leap and dance, this would be river dance. I'm not going to do it. When Paul says, in him there is redemption, it's... This is dancing language. This is joyful language. This isn't miserable language. It throbs with joy and amazement. Remember verse 3. We talked about verse 3. You can't read it without being breathless. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. He's straining in the very positive language. God has blessed us in Him. We have redemption. I think Paul's excited here, don't you? He's been locked into a prison and God has come and gone, I've got big muscles. Let me smash that prison out of the way and set you free. This is good news. This is incredible news. In him we have redemption means we were locked in And Christ has absolutely smashed it. He has absolutely smashed it. He is the Redeemer. The prison smasher. Let's um, think about that for a minute. An incredible solution. There's only a few verses, a few words in this verse. But every one of them drips with meaning. First of all, I want you to notice that Paul says in him we have redemption. In him is referring to the previous verse and the him in the previous verse is the one that the Father loves. We talked about that last time. Jesus, the apple of the Father's eye. In him In Christ, we have redemption. Can I say something really important to you? This is a real misunderstanding that people often have. Every religion in the world would point you to the Shawshank redemption. Be like Andy Dufresne. Crawl through your darkness and come out clean the other side. Christianity says the complete opposite. You are locked in and cannot save yourself. In him, in him, we have redemption. There is no possibility of us self-redeeming, but there is a redeemer who has big muscles, who can come and break the bars and lead us out into freedom. 
So, did I put it on the sheet? Oh, I can't remember now. Well, we'll come to that. I can never remember what I put on the sheet. Hopefully, hopefully it coheres with what I'm saying. Christ, uh, let me say this first. Christ is not just our sidekick. It's not like we're Sherlock Holmes and he's our Dr. Watson. If, you, if, if you're as old as me, you'll remember Danger Mouse and Penfold. You know, it, It's not like we're Danger Mouse and Jesus is our Penfold. He is not a sidekick. Christ did not come into the world to give us a leg up. I, if we're honest, I think we like the idea of Jesus helping us. Jesus is there at various points in our lives to help us with problems and difficulties. But often we don't really want him to be our saviour. I let him help me. So long as he's my sidekick. And I'm still in charge. Secondly, similarly, Christ is not just a great teacher. Some people have this misapprehension that Jesus comes into the world with the kind of Ikea instruction manual. Here's a list of things for you to do. Here's all the tools. You grab the tools, you build it all together, and then you'll be fine. Jesus didn't come to give us information. He didn't come primarily to tell us what to do to escape our predicament. In fact, what Jesus asks of us in the Gospels, if we don't understand it right, would overwhelm us and crush us. He has not come to give us instructions. He came to smash our prison. This too is the great test of Christian assurance. One of the interesting things about this verse is it's tense. Up until this point, everything that we've talked about has all been in the past. God has blessed us, he chose us, he adopted us, he so on and so on and so on. Verse 7, there's a very abrupt change. Paul says, in him we have redemption. So, for example, sometimes when I'm talking to people privately, I might say to them, Do you know that you're a Christian? And sometimes people will say something like, I hope so. Sometimes we ask each other how we are, don't we? We say, how are you? And then we say, oh, I'm getting there. I do it. I'm getting there. That sounds like Andy Dufresne to me. He spent 20 years with a little pickaxe tunneling through. If you said to Andy Dufresne, how are you? He'd have said, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I hope that one day in the future I will get there. Listen, if you are hoping to be a Christian or striving to be a Christian, it may be that you're still trying to get there yourself. And you haven't understood yet that in him we have redemption. Now, you want Christ's help, but you don't want to let him do it all. He has already got you there. So next time when someone says, how are you? You can say, I'm there. I'm not getting there. I'm there. Not because of me, but because of him. So redemption's in Christ. 
Secondly, Paul says, under this heading, in him we have redemption through his blood. I already gave you a sneak preview of that one. So, there you go, you can have that one for free. Paul here elaborates on how redemption comes to us. And he says, very simply, it comes through his blood. That's very interesting. Paul could have said, in him we have redemption through his death. But he he doesn't say death. He he chooses, as, as Paul often does in other places as well, to talk about blood. I just want to say two quick things on this. First of all, Paul is deliberately conjuring up here the idea of sacrifice. And I want to use the word costly here. Christ came into the world not primarily to help or primarily to teach, but he came into the world to give his life as a sacrifice so that we could be released from the prison that we were in. If our sin is a debt, he came and wrote a cheque to pay it all off. He did it through his life. He lived the kind of life that we do not and cannot. You talk about golden rules, he kept them to the max. He loved God, his Father, and he loved other people to the max. His whole life was one long sacrifice of perfect, joyful, cheerful, glad, obedient service. But his death was a sacrifice too. And the judgment, the condemnation that hangs over our heads actually fell on his head. He took the condemnation that our sins deserve on his own shoulders. In other words, he died in our place. He is the great substitute. The Bible says in the Old Testament, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or sin of us all. This is a little hint of the price, isn't it? Jesus himself said, didn't he, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The price wasn't money or riches or anything else. It was something far more glorious. It was his precious, noble, divine and royal blood. It was costly. Secondly, I've used the word coherent. That's a rubbish word, but it began with C, so it sounded good next to costly. It is coherent. What do I mean by that? Can I suggest to you that forgiveness is the hardest thing that God can do? In the beginning, in the Bible, God could say, let there be light. There was light. That is power. But he couldn't just say, let there be forgiveness. Do you get that? If God were just to sweep sins under the carpet, 
That would mean that he wasn't being fair. That would be an injustice. It would, it would detract from God's righteous, holy character. So, God has a massive problem. He loves people, but he's also just and fair and righteous. We were watching uh, Harry Hill last night. He does this, doesn't he, on the TV. I like this, and I like this. Which is better? Let's find out. Fight, fight, fight. If there was a fight between God's love and his justice, what would win? What would win? And if one wins, the other loses. God could say, let there be forgiveness, but he would cease to be God. And if he, if he upholds his justice, there's no hope for us because he can't love us. How can God be both fair and forgiving? How can he show mercy to us while at the same time being true to his perfect nature? Listen, I've been excited about talking about this today. The cross is the pinnacle of everything that God has ever done. Why? It took years to plan it, to execute it, and it culminates at the cross. Because in the cross, we see a glimpse of the fact that God is just and holy and kind and loving at the same time. Nothing is minimised. Nothing is sacrificed. It is coherent. Nothing is out of balance. Jesus Christ smashes our prison by climbing into it and paying our debts. God, no one could ever say, God, you're unjust to forgive that person because the person can say, Christ died. Justice is satisfied and I'm free. God's justice is upheld and his love can flow. We need to move on. Um, here's, here's my last point, a liberating outcome. So we're still with the same plot line, a big problem, an incredible solution. A liberating outcome. What does Paul say in verse 7? In him we have redemption through his blood. But what's the outcome? Someone shouted out, what's the outcome? In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. Can I just say that this is the first thing we need before we need anything else. Often we think we need help, comfort, strength, some other answer to prayer. All true. But the first thing we need above everything else is this right here. Forgiveness. Asking God for things while we're still in the prison is kind of back to front. But once forgiveness is ours, we have God with us in everything. The word for forgiveness is very interesting. Um, it comes from a word that really means to send away. And there's a great picture in the Old Testament of this as well. When the Israelites came out of Egypt in the Exodus, I don't know if this will be in the film, might be. 
God told Moses to make a sort of mobile church in the desert that they could pack up and then unpack as they travelled around in the desert as they were on the way to the promised land. It was called a tabernacle. And one day, on one specified day every year, the people, the whole nation would gather around this mobile church and the priest would lead them in confessing the nation's sins. And they would take two goats. It would have been great to have a couple of goats here today. That would have been a great illustration. Never forget that, would you? We've had donkeys at our carol service. Imagine having a goat. Two goats. The next thing the priest would do, would he, would, he would take lots. And the unlucky goat would have its throat cut. It was a sacrifice. Blood was shed. And this, this goat dies. Let me read to you what happened to the other goat. We might say the lucky one. You can judge for yourself. When Aaron, that is Moses' brother, the priest, had finished making atonement for the most holy place, that's the mobile church, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over the goat all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. All the people are watching. Priest Aaron lays his hand on the goat and he symbolically transfers all the sins of the people onto the goat's head. One goat's died, the other goat's alive, and now it's got all the sins of the people. Big burden to carry. Then it says, he shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task, a goat keeper, the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it in the wilderness. This very passage in the Bible is where we get the idea of a scapegoat. You familiar with that phrase? Scapegoat. So, imagine you're standing in the crowd. You're watching this ceremony and you whisper to your friend at the back, oh man, I feel so guilty. I've, I've done some bad stuff this year, man since last year when we did this goat thing this year my guilt's like off the scale and your kind friend says mate where are your sins and you say well they're on the goat and your friend says to you and where's the goat it's all there heading off towards the horizon a few minutes later your mate says to you have another look. Where's the goat now? And you, have you got a pair of binoculars? I, I can't actually see the goat. It's gone. Where are your sins, mate? They're gone. Do you get the picture? They're gone. The guilt of sin has gone. This picture these are animals, it's a picture this is, the whole gospel is embedded in history, this picture points us to Jesus the ultimate scapegoat, he has taken our sins away from us they're gone he's paid our debt, the punishment that should fall on us fell on him he is our redeemer who smashes the prison that enslaves us 
There's a verse in the Old Testament where God says to his people, I have swept away your offences like a cloud. Your sins like the morning mist. Return to me. Why? For I have redeemed you. Isaiah 44. Let let me close with three quick applications. We've spent a, a good portion of time pastorally for our hearts this is really really crucial and I just want to say three things you'll take these away hopefully and think about them ah forgiveness of sins you missed that first of all there is no need to play games anymore what do I mean by that you don't need to play the shame game you don't need to play the blame game You don't need to justify you by blaming other people. You don't need to hide. You can face the reality of your own life and look your life square in the face because of Jesus. You don't need to play the shame or the blame game. You don't need to punish yourself to self-harm because Christ has already taken all of that nonsense away. Neither do you need to overwork to somehow atone for your sense of underperformance. There is no need to play those kind of games anymore. Your sins are gone. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Secondly, we are free. You are free to love God purely in a way that was never possible before. We pointed out, didn't we, that while ever we are trying to be Andy Dufresne and crawl through the sewer atoning for our own guilt, everything that we're trying to do for God, we're actually doing for ourselves. Even our best efforts to love God are really self-love. But when we see that we can't redeem ourselves and we begin to rely on Christ, the great prison smasher, the irony is that suddenly we're free to love him for who he is and because of what he's done and not out of fear. I want to suggest to you that the cross changes your motive completely. Can can I be blunt with with some of you at least? I, I worry sometimes about those of you who have known this all your life. I grew up in a Christian family. I've known this since I was knee high. And there are some of you here too who can recite the gospel all day long. Jesus died for my sins, blah, blah, blah. Well, there you go, we get a tune as well. I'm going to start preaching to music now. There we go. Sorry. You know the deal. Jesus died for my sins, blah, blah, blah. But if you're honest,
if you're honest, there is no growth. There is no change in your life. You know in your head, but it hasn't affected your life. It's like you know it all, but you don't really believe it. Jesus came to smash your prison and you're rebuilding it and sitting in it instead of enduring the freedom. Can I challenge you, if that is you today, to go back, to go right back to reflect on the cross of Jesus and ask God to give you a fresh sense of the forgiveness that comes through his redemption. And the last thing I want to say is just something about humble confidence. Here's the deal. Whenever we get religion in our lives, it can only do two things. If we feel that what I do is what makes God love me, it will either make me very proud, if I think I can do it, or if I don't think I can do it, I'll give up. The logical conclusion of religion is either pride or depression. That's the gig. The gospel cuts through all of that because it says that we have nothing to boast about in us and yet everything to boast about in Christ. The gospel has resources within it to help you to be truly humble and not self-righteous and yet truly confident in what God has done for you through Christ. Some people think, I hope God will forgive me one day. I hope God is nice enough to do that for me. Listen, God is so much more than just nice. He has smashed your prison. And you can be connected to him right now. You don't have to hope for it. You can have it now by trusting the great Redeemer, Jesus. What will you do with all of this? In this chapter of Ephesians, we've been asking a series of questions. Can I really grow? Yes, you can, because he's chosen you to be holy and blameless before him in love. Do I really belong? Yes, you do, because he's predestined you to be adopted into his very family through Jesus Christ, the one he loves. Now we're asking, can I recover when I mess up? Yes, you can, because Christ has redeemed you. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Come and believe it. Come and enjoy it. Amen.